Chapter 15 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 15. Mrs. Witcherly supposed that it must have been in consequence of her sitting out in the garden. She did not see how it could have been that. But at the same time, if it was not that, what else could it have been? Anyway, there it was, a slight chill, not so much a cold, she explained, as the beginning of a cold. Deal with these things promptly, she said to Claudius, and you get them over in a day. Keep indoors, and in one room as much as possible. Spirits of camphor, light diet, and a little champagne in the evening. That is my rule, and I do not know what it is to have a cold last more than one day. You nip it in the bud before it really gets hold of the system. Claudius was properly sympathetic. Mrs. Witcherly must not, of course, dream of going out. The visit to Deepwater could easily be postponed until the morrow. But the good-natured lady would not hear of this. Why, she said, should three people sit indoors for one cold, or rather the beginning of a cold, on a glorious morning like this? If you don't mind conducting Angela alone and unchaperoned, I am sure you would take good care of her, and for that matter I think she is quite capable of taking care of herself. I told her I should insist, and she's putting her hat on now. But won't you be wretchedly dull all alone? My dear Mr. Sandell, if I thought that I was spoiling everybody's pleasure, then I should indeed be dull. But I assure you, I have much to occupy me. I'm working for a bazaar. I don't know if you ever... At this moment, Angela entered. She wore white muslin and it was quite a new dress. Mama won't let me nurse her, she said, and has turned me out of doors. I'm going back to live with Papa. Mrs. Witcherly smiled, protested, fluttered, fussed. There were a few moments of amiable and aimless small talk, and as much opposition to Mrs. Witcherly's plan as civility demanded, and then Claudius and Angela started out. This is your own boat, said Angela, as she stepped into the stern of it and took the lines. Yes, it's mine. Why did you think so? I thought it looked too new for a hired boat, and the cushions are too good, and it's got several little treats in it that one does not get in a hired boat. They spoke further of the difficulty of steering with the sun blazing on the water, of dragonflies, and of certain popular beliefs as to the bad temper and physical strength of swans. And of all these, they spoke with that appearance of great interest that one always shows when one is being more interested in something of which one is not speaking. After a while, they came to a backwater and went down it. Here they were quite alone. The dragonflies flashed across the river over the floating water lily leaves. The midges in fevered shoals danced out their day. From the high white road in the distance, where a man was driving cattle and having trouble with them, 
came the faint echo of an angry shout. In a shady place, with trees meeting over the water, Claudius drew the boat into the bank, and Angela, nestling more comfortably into the silken cushions, thanked him for having found so lovely a spot. They had both known, through all their impersonal talk, that the personal question was for them the inevitable question, that on that day, sooner or later, in one way or another, it would arise. "'I've been thinking a good deal,' said Angela suddenly, looking away from Claudius and over the water. "'I was afraid so,' said Claudius. "'I was wrong, but I know it now, and I'm very sorry for it. "'In what way wrong?' I do not understand. For telling you, even though you asked it, all that I told you on Tuesday night, I knew that you were sensitive, tender-hearted, that the story must hurt you. I knew that by telling you I was not materially benefited. The only thing that can be said for me is, he paused. Yes, said Angela in a low voice. Why should I not say it? I could not endure to be in a false position with you. A slight flush came and died in her cheeks. And besides, he continued, I felt, I think it was the first time in my life that I needed sympathy. Why should tender-hearted people be cowards, said Angela? In order to give sympathy, one must first feel pain. But in giving it, there is pleasure. The greater that pain, the greater that pleasure. No, you must not reproach yourself. I should be glad if you would tell me more, if there is any more. We shall soon be at the end of that story. Last night I laid awake an hour and seemed to hear all the clocks in the world ticking out the minutes left to me. There is little that is new since I spoke to you that night on the heath, and what is new is very prosaic. A publisher has accepted my novel. Before I came to you this morning, telegrams passed between my broker and myself. I have sold my Martin House deep. They were up again yesterday at a profit of twelve thousand pounds. I could repay Dr. Lamb twofold if there were the remotest chance that money would tempt him. Your book accepted, murmured Angela, and fortune come to you, and all too late? If that were all, said Claudius passionately, if that were only all. Isn't it, she said? You know that it is not. You must know what I have no right to tell you, except it be the right of a dying man. It is the love which comes too late. It is that which hurts. Angela, I love you. I, who have no right to say it, I love you. I think I knew, she said. She spoke with quiet serenity, but her bosom rose and fell more deeply and quickly. Her pathetic eyes looked fixed away from him. And it all goes on, she said after a moment's silence, the shadow of the clouds drifting over the water and little bits of things floating downstream. 
and that thrush there singing just the same. And in a few hours you will have gone away, and I shall not hear you speaking to me any more. And just then she broke down. Suddenly she covered her face with her hands. I can't bear it, Claudius, she sobbed. I can't bear it. Forgive me, dear Angela. She let her hands drop, looked at him with tears in her eyes, and spoke, catching her breath here and there. But no, if you had not spoken, that would have been harder. Now there's happiness coming through it all. He was as one dazed. It's so hard to believe, he said. Do you mean that you care, that you love me? Yes, oh yes, she said it almost proudly, with her sad eyes still looking full into his. Though I die tonight, he said, I shall have seen paradise. Do you remember saying that? Yes, I remember. That was the first evening I met you and loved you. Oh, Claudius, all my life through, I must have been looking for you. Only two days more. I, too, I seem to hear all the clocks in the world ticking out the minutes. Have you no hope at all, dearest? He smiled. I have but to break my word, and I am free. She shook her head. You know, she said, I could not ask that. Is there no other hope? So little, he said drearily, that I had no right. Don't, she broke in impetuously. Don't say that any more. You must not reproach yourself. You have done right in telling me. I feel it, know it. It cannot go on to to the conventional end, but it's good that you have loved me even this very little while. Away in the distance, a church clock chimed out the hour. Then near at hand they heard the regular turn of oars in the rowlocks. Another boat was approaching. Voices and laughter grew gradually more distinct. Claudius pushed out from the bank. They were not far now from the inn at deep water, and he rode towards it in silence. Angela lay back on the cushions, watching him. Beyond the garden of the inn, with its sly, commonplace, sentimental arbors, was an old orchard. They had their coffee brought here after luncheon. Angela sat playing with her coffee cup. Claudius, lying on the grass at her feet, looked up in her eyes and praised her. Their talk was enraptured, full of those endearing words and phrases that lovers use and the rest of the world derides. After a while they spoke of the past, each wanting to know what the other's life had been like. Full of the smallest things, said Angela, until, until this, until I loved you, said Claudius, my life was worthless, not worth what Dr. Lamb gave me for it, not worth anything. They praised love. Love was the light in life, the stars in the night, the scent in the flowers, the soul in the music. All the truisms come out new when one is living the truth of them. To the dying man, Tempest Fugit is no commonplace. As they rose at last to go homewards, 
Claudius took her by the hands and drew her towards him. She half whispered something. He could not hear the words. I love you, he cried. If you knew how I loved you, I love you. Her gentle voice came like an echo. He held her closely in his arms now. Her head fell backward. Her eyes fainted. Her breathing quickened. He kissed her beautiful mouth. Together, in silence, they passed back through the orchard, through the garden, to the inn and the river. In the boat, too, for some time, they sat in silence. If, said Claudius at last, by some means, by some means that I cannot foresee now, I can get back my liberty, I shall come back to you. I am bound to you. But you must not think yourself bound to me. You are free. She held her little hands together like a chained captive. I shall never be free again, she said. I would not be. Will you come to me tonight on the heath? said Claudius. I will be by the white beaches, you remember, where I found you that night, when I told you my story, and wait for me there. The time is so short and I must see you again before the day's over. Yes, she said, I will come to you, Claudius. Once that afternoon, Angela had said, I do not think we need tell anyone about this. No one else could understand. Lovers love secrecy, and Claudius would fain have given in to her wishes, but he felt he had no right in this matter. I am afraid, he said, that you must tell your mother our secret, but not, of course, Dr. Lamb's. Perhaps no one could have understood. Certainly, when Angela tried to do as Claudius had said, poor Mrs. Wycherley was mystified extremely. She sympathized. She said that she could have wished for nothing better than an engagement between her daughter and Claudius Sandell who was a kind and honorable gentleman, if Mrs. Wycherley had ever seen one. But was this an engagement? If not, what was it? Oh, couldn't Angela explain a little more? Angela, on the verge of tears, could not. Mrs. Wycherley thereupon roamed into a wild field of hypothetical explanations on her own account. Some of them sounded likely. Some were very wild, and all were quite wrong. Then she became expostulatory. Until this obstacle, whatever it was, was removed, Angela ought really not to see Mr. Sandell. Well, as you have promised, I shall let you go tonight just for five minutes, or shall we say four? Well, five then. But after that, no more. No more at all until he is free to to go on as he ought to go on but mother angela pleaded you've told me that you like him and trust him if i do not see him again after tonight perhaps i shall never see him again at all never as long as i live you can't understand the difficulty is not any of the things you think not anything he can escape or alter if not tomorrow let me see him on Saturday before he goes. 
it will only be like saying good-bye to a dying man oh i will be good and do what you tell me but i am so unhappy and here angela not ineffectively though the poor child was not acting burst into tears mrs wycherley was sure that she was more distressed than she could express she blamed herself that it had ever come to this and how she asked was she to know what to say when she only wanted to act in the way that was best for angela what she said at last was that they would be back in london on saturday that claudius might call on them in Erciston square on saturday evening and angela should be allowed to see him alone then when they met on the heath that night angela told her sorrows breathlessly and asked what was to be done i had meant to ask you that he replied see can you read this i found it waiting for me when i got back this afternoon it is from lady verrider by the light of the wax match that claudius held in his hand angela read the telegram your father wires me nothing wrong with him but he would like to see you at once do please go to him am sure it would be best what does it mean said angela the telegram says that he is not ill it may mean reconciliation said claudius thoughtfully or it may mean that the spirits have advised matilda comby to send for me it may mean anything claudius i think you must go to him yes i think so too now if i cannot be seeing you i will go there indeed if it does mean reconciliation i shall be glad to go i should love to be on good terms with him again before the end but angela to think that we have only two days left and we are to lose almost the whole of them dear love as best they could they comforted each other yet parted with heavy hearts End of chapter 15 Recording by John Brandon